So hi, I'm John. And I'm Joe. Welcome to our podcast, Extraordinariness. Where we explore the motivations behind ordinary people's extraordinary accomplishments. Brilliant. What's the podcast about? We are looking at people who are in every other aspect of their life what we would describe as ordinary, but they're just doing something a bit outside of the box. So they're not like, uh, we're not talking about like an Olympian. No. So something that... It's people who've done something that someone ordinary can do. You don't need to have, like, size 15 Michael Phelps feet. Exactly. Yeah. So not someone who was scouted in their youth as someone showing mass potential in a particular sport. Someone like us. Someone who has just decided to take on Distinctly something... Distinctly average. <laughs> Ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So it's just kind of finding these people who have thought, do you know what? Outside of my day to day, I want to sh- achieve something extraordinary. And they and so they have extraordinariness, which you've assured me is a word. It's a hundred percent a word. I did okay. think I made it up actually. I thought you made it up. I and still then think you made it then up. I googled it and I was disappointed to find that it was already in existence. Excellent. But you've worked out how to say it. Extraordinary, extraordinary. <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> no, you you can't think about it. Extraordinariness. 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 Yeah. Okay. If you say it fast enough, it doesn't really matter <laughs> if you get it a bit wrong. So what are we going to try and do with, uh, we've got some guests, and uh, what are we going to try and work out? What are we going to try and find out from these uh, extra- ordinary, extraordinary people? So I guess each week we're going to talk to people that each of us have found um, from our own research who we think have done something particularly extraordinary. And I guess what we're trying to find out is, is there anything that they've done, whether it's things they've selected or their aspects of their personality or their upbringing, that we could almost extrapolate. Is that a word? It is a word. I think it's the wrong word, if I'm honest. <laughs> take away. Take away. Yeah. And put into our own sort of toolbox of, the, of sort of what makes people do extraordinary things. So we're going to make an extraordinary toolbox. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I like that. So something that we can all maybe use, and even if we're not going to go and uh, climb a mountain or uh, row an ocean, but, you know, we're going to, like... Uh... Well, that's, again, what what is extraordinariness? To, to me and you, it might mean one thing. To someone else, it might mean another. Mm. Well, we'll find out. We will find out. This week, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing an amazing woman and fellow aviator, Shasta Wise, and hearing all about her extraordinary accomplishment. In 2017, I took off in a A36 Beechcraft Bonanza from Florida, and I set off to fly around the world. It was a total of 22 stops across five continents, uh, close to 25,000 nautical miles, um, and on my journey, I had the, the uh, opportunity to meet with 3,000 kids face-to-face to talk to wow. them about STEM and aviation. And the trip took 145 days. When it was completed, I set the world record of being the youngest woman to fly solo around the world in a single-engine aircraft. I had thought that maybe there had been a lot more women who had flown around the world. Yeah. But um, as I started to look into it, I realized um, in the history of aviation, only seven women have ever flown around the world uh, in a general aviation aircraft. So it was surprising that I would be yeah. the eighth, and I wasn't expecting that. 
I was surprised by this as well. Whilst aviation has, without doubt, historically been a bit of a man's world, it's always had a strong line of heroines, from Amelia Earhart, who famously set off on her ill-fated journey round the world in 1937, to the first woman who successfully completed a solo flight around the globe, Geraldine Mock, on April 18th, 1964. But Shasta doesn't come from a long line of aviators. In fact, her early years were a little bit different. I am originally from Afghanistan. Uh, my family uh, and I came as refugees to America. We settled in California. And that's where I spent a great deal of my childhood, um, growing up in California with my five sisters uh, and me, wow. so six girls. And, um, you know, because of my Afghani roots, I kind of had this idea, or settled with the idea of getting married at a young age and having a family um, and being a housewife. That's what my mom did and her mom and generations before them. And everything changed for me when I uh, was 18 years old and I boarded mm -hmm. um, a commercial airplane. It was a Delta Airlines flight flying from San Francisco to um, to Florida. And I just, uh, as a passenger in the back seat, sitting in like way in the back middle seat, yeah. you know, places where people don't want to be generally, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I had experienced flight in a way that um, I had never experienced it before. And um, I fell in love with it. It was yeah. so empowering uh, just to look out the little window and see the small yeah. town that I grew up in and just have perspective of how big the world is. And so um, that's what really did it for me. So most people, when they discover this passion for aviation, decide that they want to be an airline pilot or a business jet pilot, something glamorous. And that includes me, but not Shasta. And I kept coming back to this idea of flying myself around the world to inspire and impact young boys and girls who either think aviation is not an option or they just don't know much about it. So I thought, you know what? Life is short. I'm going to start my own nonprofit. I'm going to create this job description and I'm going to fly around the world to inspire the next generation. At this point, it's worth quickly talking about the challenge itself, because for most of us, Air travel and flying has become pretty routine, safe, and it's comfortable. Things were a little bit different for Shasta. So I um, I had two internal fuel tanks. So the um, inside the cabin, we removed all the seats that were in the back. So the Bonanza um, holds six passengers, including the pilot and the co-pilot seat. So the four back seats were removed and we had this gigantic aluminum tank that held, I think it was like 160 gallons. Then in addition to that, we removed the co-pilot seat and we had a custom made uh, tank that sat right next to me. Then of course I had my regular fuel tanks and then uh, DeShannon fuel uh, tip tanks. So that was different. I mean, I was flying yeah. around the world with this tank and, and it did, um, it gave me a couple scares. That's a lot of fuel tanks. Now, it's not common knowledge, but on a single engine airplane, whilst you have lots of fuel tanks, you only use one at a time and you have to manually switch between the two to manage your fuel. The tanks didn't have any real sort of gauges, so it was a lot of like, okay, I put in X amount of gallons, I know at this time I'm going to run out um, of the tank. So it was just a matter of running the tanks dry and then just hearing like the engine go quiet and then... <laughs> 
praying that you know you you switch your fuel selector to the next tank and it catches but you're over an ocean like it's just i mean it your heart's yeah, no, just I, it's hard I'm, to recover I'm, from that i'm sweating just thinking about it um <laughs> yeah, i used to teach yeah. i used to be a flying instructor and i always remember teaching people flying across the english channel which is you know only like right. 30 40 miles uh, at some of the places you might cross and you know saying to them right you want if you go when you're going to change tanks you want to do that before you don't want to be changing right, tanks exactly yeah crossing. i know but you had no choice obviously because you've yeah. got to I wanted to make sure those internal fuel tanks like that i was using all the fuel that i had accessible yeah. to me um so yeah, yeah that, that was one technical thing and another was when i would be flying over oceans or really remote parts of the world where you know there were no air traffic control i had to use a hf radio and it was like this huge radio is like dinosaur age Mm. technology, you know, and it was just so loud and you'd hear all these strange sounds. Uh, would you like to hear what the HF radio sounds like? Oh, I'd love to. based on where the position of the sun is, your frequencies would change. And so like, it was just tough to just sit there in this plane over really hot weather, listen to this, the noise that the HF radio is making, you know, managing your fuel, making sure that your plane is still, you know, running and you're, you're, you're en route to your destination. I mean, it was just a lot. And I, I didn't have any sort of weather radar on board. So it was a lot of like, okay look out the window, see and avoid. Um, and that's tough to do when you're flying over India during monsoon season or flying yeah, across yeah. the intertropical conversion zone. So yeah, it, it, there was always some challenge that really um, tested me and, and made me grow as a pilot. And having to listen to those sounds constantly for hour upon hour are not the only problems the HF radio caused, Shasta. You had a problem with your HF aerial, is that right? I. I did, my, my HF antenna. So I, I took off from Halifax, Nova Scotia, up in uh, northern Canada, en route to cross the Atlantic Ocean to the Azores. And about three hours in, my HF antenna snapped off um, and it just broke into three. Um, and the HF antenna, it's a 28-foot cable that's connected on the exterior of your aircraft in the shape of a triangle. So the antenna was um, just connected from my wingtip um, over to the side window of my Bonanza, then back to the tail. So it was this, like, triangle antenna just hanging out, like, mm. you know, on the, on, uh, on the exterior of the aircraft. So it snapped off, and it was a bit scary because I had lost my HF radio communications. Sure. Um, and I couldn't communicate with anybody, and I knew I had to turn the plane around and land as soon as practical because I wasn't sure what was going to happen with this antenna. It was just dangling off the tail, and it yeah, was pretty yeah. long. So um, luckily, I landed in a small island called St. Pierre, uh, St. Pierre and Miquelon. It's a French island off of the coast of Canada. It was scary, I, I, to be honest. I was really questioning if I wanted to fly around the world at that point. I was just, um, it was, it was, it's scary when you're over the ocean and you look down and you see icebergs and you, yeah. it just makes it, puts everything into perspective. 
Um, but I, I was stuck. Um, I eventually flew the plane to St. John's in Newfoundland, Canada, which is the most northeastern tip of Canada, um, of really of North America. And I was there for about two weeks, just waiting for our mechanic to fly out, waiting for parts to put this antenna back together. So in that two weeks, I kind of got my courage back. And yeah. Yeah. So I, then uh, after that, I went on. Anybody who, who says they haven't been scared in an airplane any pilot who says they haven't been scared i yeah. I, I could don't trust them i never trust a pilot yeah. who says they're not scared right <laughs> there's times where you so think true. yeah i remember when i first got um a job flying uh twin engine navajos you know air taxi job yeah and they were giving me my they said you know you're the captain now and the guy said to me that uh this is the biggest responsibility that you won't know you have until it goes wrong yeah, that's And then true. it goes wrong and you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach and you think, yeah. well, there's no one else here to solve this but me. Right. And oh, it's yeah. it's tough. Yeah, yeah, it is tough. Um, were there any other times where you thought you might fail in your um, mission to fly around the world? Yeah, so, um, you know, another experience that really stood out for me was when I was in Hawaii, um, I actually attempted the takeoff twice. And what I mean by that is... Um, you know, that was the longest leg of the trip. I took off from Honolulu, Hawaii. I was en route to Hayward, California. It was about a 14 and a half hour flight by myself over the Pacific Ocean. A very long time in an airplane. Yeah, very long. In, in the middle of summertime, you know, it's like, gosh, it was, it was hot, it was humid. Um, and at that point of the trip, I was just exhausted. I just wanted for it to be done. I was getting a little homesick. Um, and, and so the takeoff was very intense because I was a test pilot once I added full throttle, getting ready to, to take off because I had so much fuel on board. And I had never flown the aircraft at this weight. And my climb, once my, my uh, wheels lifted off the ground, were 50 feet per minute. That's how, it's not good. Yeah, it, yeah, it's basically you're nursing this plane barely climbing, yeah. you know, um, and it, it was dangerous. And I remember I was um, so many, uh, was just a couple hours out, I had um, entered the oceanic airspace and I was doing my fuel calculations and I realized that I was going to be 30 minutes short based on the winds that I were, uh, the actual winds. And it was, I had a one knot headwind component that threw it all off. Um, and I just remember just feeling even more tired and I thought, well, you know, maybe the winds are going to change. It has to change. It's this great distance and I don't want to turn around and do this takeoff again. And, yeah. you know, just... All, all of these, like, you'll be fine, sort of. Get, um, get their itis, we call it. Exactly, yeah. get their itis, yeah. And I stopped myself and I said, look, I've always had a very safe, strict safety standard uh, with, with my flying, and that's what got me this far. I cannot just give it up and, and continue yeah. on this trip. So I turned around and it was a little sad. I remember when I contacted Honolulu Approach, they had asked me why did I turn back around and why did I cancel my flight plan? And um, I just said weather, like I didn't feel like explaining myself. So sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I landed and it was just disappointing. But you know, I'm so glad that I made that decision because it's it's like you, you can't get that far into your journey and then start taking shortcuts because that's when things do go wrong. But it's, I remember that moment sticking out. 
takes enormous um, uh, self-confidence in making your decisions and, and that kind of control. And I, I remember a training captain saying to me once that we're not paying you to fly into the airport in the horrible weather. We're paying you to make the decision not to fly into the airport in the yeah, horrible weather. that's a good point. Know? Yeah, very um, good point. I, and it's it's really hard to do because you're. I think we're all we're all focused on completing the mission, aren't we? You know, we want to be a, yeah. be that pilot who can do it. Um, right. We talked about the fact that Shasta's the youngest woman to make this flight around the world, but the problems facing her in the air are no different to the problems that would face a male pilot. On the ground, though, things are a little bit different. Take, for example, after she just arrived in Saint Pierre, after turning back with the HF problem. And I remember when I landed, um, I was just a bit shaken up and the Mm. immigration officer walked up to me and he was so confused. He was like, who is this girl and what is going on? And the first thing he asks me is he's like, bonjour, uh, where's the pilot? And I kind of look at him and I'm like, oh, hi. And I was like, sir, I'm the pilot. And he was like, no, no, I'm, I'm a immigration officer, this is serious, where is the pilot? Mm. So I turned back to the plane, which the doors were open, and I'm like, sir, do you think you can fit another person in this plane? <laughs> like, it's just me out here. Um, so, yeah, I had that experience. So along with the airborne challenges, Shastad put up with these headwinds on the ground as well. It's interesting because I had a lot, I, I wouldn't say a lot, but I had my, a fair amount of people who doubted me. And even up okay. to the day before I had left, I remember we got an email from someone very prominent in, in the Bonanza community who flat out wrote that I was going to kill myself, that I was on this mission, that it was dangerous and I shouldn't do it, that it was irresponsible. Um, and so... Because they know, felt the airplane or because of your skills? No, I mean, be, yeah, be, because of my skills. It was like... bizarre. Very bizarre, yeah. And what's interesting is other people who've done it in a bonanza didn't get an email like that. So that was very wow. um, disappointing. And and so, I, you know, rather than reacting, I thought, I just need to go out there and do this yeah. and, and just come back and say, look, it's done, you know. And she did just that. Fortunately, not all the voices on the ground were doubters, including the inspirational Geraldine Mock. Uh, Jerry Mock is the first woman who ever flew solo around the world back in 1964. Uh, she flew a Cessna 180, and Amazing. her story really is incredible because um, she got into aviation a little bit later in life, and she was a housewife from Ohio. And one day she just she told her husband over dinner, like, I'm bored. Um, I'm, I'm flying, and I really want to go see the world. And so before they knew it, she was getting ready to fly around the world. It took her 29 days, um, and she successfully did it. And um, in pursuit of me, um, you know, getting ready to fly around yeah. the world, I had reached out to her, not really expecting a response. You know, I just wanted to say, I... I did my best to, to get a hold of her, but she responded. And I went to her house in Florida. It's, uh, it was up in Tallahassee in a small town called Quincy, uh, Florida. And I met her and she was just, uh, just amazing. Like out, just in terms of like, she had the spirit in her. Like she w- was talking about the global flight as if it had happened like a week ago. Yeah. Um, and, and so she, 
inspired me a lot. And throughout the years before her death, um, we had stayed in contact. And sadly, when she passed away, I believe it was in 2013, yeah. uh, her family had asked me to be a part of a very special ceremony where we flew, not in her Cessna 180, but a similar one, yeah. um, and to spread her ashes over the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, and wow. that, I know, that was such an wow, honor. Yeah. Um, so we did that, and I remember as her ashes were being spread over the Atlantic Ocean, I kind of had this internal dialogue, uh, really just kind of speaking out loud to Jerry, saying that, you know, I hope when I cross this ocean, you'll be with me, you know, you'll give me like the yeah, stream, yeah. you know, and, and so it was very emotional, and I thought about her, you know, like at least every so often on the trip, and I was so grateful to have met her and to have had that time with her before she passed away. Um, so yeah, she was, that was really special. I'm so glad that I had that experience. So Geraldine Mock was truly an inspiration. And what I love about this story is how Shasta has now taken that mantle upon herself. When I went to Spain, uh, for example, um, I met an incredible woman who worked for the Civil Aviation Authority in Spain. She was my host. She, has, she had a really, like an official job with the, mm. Uh, Civil Aviation Authority, um, and when I met her, she had shared with me that she wanted to fly, and that was a passion of hers since she was a little girl, but it was very difficult, and to become an airline pilot in Spain is challenging. So I had spent some time with her. She was my host. I established a friendship with her, and before I left, she had said that she wanted to take that leap of faith and actually invest into becoming a pilot. Um, and throughout the years, we've maintained our, our friendship, and I saw her grow from being a student pilot to now a commercial pilot. Fantastic. So that was just, yeah, that, that was very, very just moving. Um, and I had met so many incredible women like this. Including Zara Rutherford, who, at 19 years old, is currently attempting to break Shasta's record and become the youngest woman to fly solo around the globe. I asked Shasta how it feels to think that someone like Zara would have been inspired by a list of aviators, like she was, featuring Geraldine Mock, Amelia Earhart, and Shasta Wise. I'm so proud of Zara. She's only 19 years old. Uh, she's <laughs> flying around the world in an ultralight, which I think, oh, oh my goodness, that's so brave of her. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy to see someone going after this world record. And it's interesting, because when she first reached out to me, one of her first questions was, is it okay that I go after your world record? And I told her, Zara, of course, these are what world records are made for. It's made to be broken and, you know, for people to, to uh, participate in them. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, it, it's unreal to think that it's, it's happened so quickly. And when I flew around the world, I was 29 and she's 19. So there's a 10 year gap there, but um, I'm, I'm just wishing her all the best. I know she's going to be successful and, uh, I'm just, I'm so proud of her and I'm so proud that someone is doing this. It's, a woman. It's, yeah. Well, yeah, it's amazing. And at 19, I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, anyone at 19, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. She's given it, and I've seen some pictures of the plane and it's, uh, yeah, it's a small plane. It is. You know, when I um, first read about her, I had all these questions pop up into my mind, and I was just like, I kind of felt like a mama bear protecting her cub. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'd never met Zara before, but it, all these things, like, 
oh, you can't do this, or you shouldn't do this. And then I just took a step back, and I remembered the way Jerry approached me. And even Barrington Irving, who was a great mentor of mine, he's um, the from Jamaica. He set the world record of being the youngest man to fly around the world okay. in 2010 in a Columbia. Yeah, so he was a great mentor to me. And I just thought about how their mentorship affected me, and I just made sure that I I wanted to be a support to Zara versus a burden. Um, And of course, share with her the things that I maybe would have done differently. But you just, everyone has a different trip. Everyone has a different experience. You really can't predict much. You can just share the knowledge that you, you you found to be most effective. But you have to let that person just go out and do it. You know, that's... I asked Shasta for her peak and pit of the trip. Um, the peak was when I was flying across the Atlantic Ocean, I reached the point of no return, um, the PNR, and it was really tense getting up to that point because I just thought, oh my God, is my HF antenna okay? Am I going to make it? And I think reaching that point kind of allowed me to look up and just take a moment to realize what I was doing. And um, I remember looking up, looking out into the ocean. I couldn't see anything. There were, there were no like birds or boats or anything. It was literally in the middle of the Atlantic. And I just thought, you know, in the history of aviation, only seven women, including yeah. Jerry Mock and Amelia Earhart, Amazing. have flown across this ocean and I would have never guessed that the eighth woman would be this Afghani refugee who grew up thinking she was never going to do anything amazing in life and you know had a lot of struggle but she would she would there I was you know and one of the lows was probably when I got head lice uh in Asia (laughs) I know it's so bizarre I wasn't expecting that (laughs) I know um, and in Asia, you know, I'm not quite sure where I picked it up, but I just remember being in the Bonanza. It was just hot. And I'm just scratching my head and I'm like, what is going on? And the problem with, um, I was in a lot of remote places in Asia where there that you couldn't find head lice medication. And that was just the f- most frustrating thing. It's something that at home I can just go to the supermarket and just, you know, buy it there or at the drugstore. Um, and so flying with head lice is just, ah. My final question for Shasta was, what advice would she give anybody setting out on an adventure and experience like this? You know, I think it's mindset over our anything um, because you can always have more training. You can always have more support. You, can, you know, the list goes on. But if you don't have the right mindset, that can really... Um, hurt you in so many ways. Um, and, and so, you know, when you set off to do anything, any goal, you almost have to treat it like it's a responsibility and that you're just committed to it. There's, there's no excuses. There, there are no shortcuts. Just dedicate yourself to it, to the craft, to the mission, um, and then celebrate once it's done. Um, but yeah, it's just mindset is everything. And that's really what got me around the world. Are you planning to do it again? Fly around the world again? Oh, God, no. You know, I don't (laughs) see there ever to be a need. Maybe in a jet or, you know, just for fun, but not in a single engine airplane. It's, It's a lot of work. It's tough. 
So, Joe, what are your thoughts on Shasta's journey? I mean, she's amazing, right? Just, I mean, a lot of the the bits of the interview have really that have sort of jumped out at me is her whole, and I know she mentions it at the end, how important she thinks mindset is. And she explains it as taking on this challenge as a responsibility. So it's yeah, almost like, like she's approached it like she had to do it. So it was like a need to do as opposed to a nice to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very true. I hadn't picked up on that. It is. It's like she has a responsibility to do this flight around the world. And she said at the very beginning that she wanted to do it to inspire people. You know, it wasn't just going mm. off on a jolly. And perhaps having that extra reason is what makes it feel like a responsibility. I have a responsibility to show other girls yeah. and women. And I think because she detached her own personal achievement, and don't get me wrong, she does acknowledge her own personal achievement when she talks about her peak in terms of realising that she's the only the eighth woman, woman in the world yeah. to have done this. She does acknowledge sort of the personal achievement aspect but she says from the very beginning she set out to do it for other people so it's almost like she has taken on this role and you know particularly when she talks about um hawaii and how she had to turn around and come back i mean that was just so destroying listening to that but at no point did she think oh well this is the end so i need Mm. to go back i need to take this seriously i need to do it properly and i need to take off again and it's all very much she's she's taking it on as something that she really has to do. And we can already see how many other people that has inspired. Yeah, I love how it comes back round, you know, where she's the person who's meeting her inspiration, which is Geraldine Mock, who mm-hmm. herself was just incredible. And, you know, not to detract from anyone flying around the world now, but to do it in the 60s with the technology available. Yeah, that is know, pretty incredible. Is, is, well done, Jerry. But then I love the fact that... that People like Zara Rutherford, who's currently you know doing this flight, are looking back at a list of people who also have Shasta on there. You know, who's born in a it's done, yeah, camp. exactly. So it's full circle. It's almost Shasta is to Zara what Jerry was to Shasta in yes. terms of an inspiring female role model who has executed the journey before them. Yes, and maybe something that gets lost, and I think it's worth thinking about for a second is there's a lot of talk about you know flying over the ocean. It's, it's worth pointing out, if something goes wrong with that engine, you're landing in an ocean hundreds of miles. You know, it's a 14-hour flight from Hawaii. So you could be seven hours away from land. So no one's going to come and get you. Anytime soon. Anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, that's you're brave. You've got to be super brave to do that. Yeah, that is pretty petrifying as a concept. I was going to ask, John, how does a 19-year-old get a full pilot's licence? Uh, you can get a pilot's license age seven, 16? 17. You can go solo when you're 16 and you can get a pilot's license when you're 17, I believe. But you're right. By the time you're 19, you need to have done a... You know, Shasta says uh, somewhere else in the interview that didn't make the cut that she had uh, 800 hours when she set off to fly around the world. So, you know... So for, Zara would have... So I, I'm presuming Zara will have a similar amount. I mean, that's... That's not a lot of flying, but in the general aviation world, it's a reasonable amount, you know. You, well, you I mean, I think experience. when I was 19, I barely passed my driving test and I'd r- racked up a fair few, <laughs> fair few hours as my long-suffering driving instructor. Yeah, yeah. It's fairly common for people who are into flying to go solo in a plane before they ever drive a car by themselves. Oh, really? Yeah, which I always thought was crazy. Like, I flew a glider when I was 16, 
solo, and then I think I flew a plane when I was 16 solo, long before I driven a, drove a car. How did I not know that? Well, I probably did. not paying attention. I thought it was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy taking my third driving test. <laughs> <laughs> the whole landing in Spain... Excuse me. Oh, no, was it France? Where did the she land? The little French island, Saint-Pierre. Landing in Saint-Pierre yeah. and the whole where is the pilot moment. Yeah. That was, for me, just as a woman, not nothing to do with aviation, that, that struck a chord. I mean, it's just a, an unconscious bias, isn't it? He's just mm-hmm. walked over and assumed that this woman obviously isn't the captain, the pilot of the plane. You know, that's just bizarre. But that's kind of what I was you know, talking about with Shasta was that, you know, for me to fly around the world, you know, in, in the aeroplane, we're not, there's no, there's no, you know, like the biggest challenges we're both going to face are going to be the same things. Like you need to go for a wee in 14 hours. Well, that, you know, we can both get over those uh, problems. But well, I... Until you just mentioned that, I've never really that. considered that. <laughs> but but <laughs> I... A logistical challenge. It is, it is. <laughs> but, but no different for a man or a woman, really, I think, like ultimately, you know. But... Um, mm. You know, on the ground, I think it would have been very different. And certainly when you're planning something like this, and that's probably the biggest challenge is planning. You know, I think flying around the world, fine, that, that's a set of technical challenges, you know, your piloting skills. But just planning it would just be, I mean, you're talking visas, flight plans, you know, uh, checking the weather in so many different ways. Maps, right? You need to take a map with you when you fly around the world. VFR, but maps usually only cover one small part of a country, so you're going to have hundreds of maps. I mean, it's just the challenge of putting it together, logistical challenge, is huge, and I think yeah. that's where being uh, a woman, Shasta points out, that she had more problems because she would get people emailing her saying, you know, you shouldn't do this. Yes, because she does say that they questioned her ability. It was really just down to the fact that she was a female trying to take this on, I and no so. one would have sent yeah. the same email if it would been you, for example. No, exactly. And, and that's, you know, that's, again, that's where she shows real courage, doesn't she? And again, perhaps where this respond, this idea of a responsibility... Well, I was going to say, probably that really fuels this concept of mindset that she talks mm. about. It's, and it's... Stubbornness is probably the wrong word, but the determination to, mm. to prove, you, you know, that thinking wrong yeah. in her quest to prove herself and other sort of women who are going to be inspired by her right. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's just hugely outdated, the, the thinking. I mean, there's, there's not many, but there's still more and more female pilots, like professional female pilots are coming through, you know, more and more are seeing it because of people like Shasta yeah. as a, you know, a viable career that's open to them. But there's still going to be little pockets of the world and particular cultures, specifically and quite interestingly, the one where, she, you know, where she yeah. comes from that this is quite an alien concept and where women are, like her, you know, the generations before Shasta with her mum, her, her gran and every woman before her, you know, their, their, their expectations are to become a mother. Yeah, and so she I is a mother as well, but there's no one to say you can't be a mother and a pilot. Well, of course, but yeah. as the idea of being a homemaker. Okay, yeah, yeah. And or a housewife, just housewife, a housewife. And that to be specifically your, your domain. Mm. And I find that quite interesting that she... Um, Broke the mould with So that. she is one of uh, several sisters, and there's no brothers, so that her, you know, her father has lots and lots of girls. And at one point, when I spoke to Shasta, we talked about her father. He'd always wanted to be a pilot, 
and that when he hadn't been able to do it, he'd had this kind of idea that when he had a, a son, his son would go off and be a pilot. Mm. And so um, during the trip, they went to Afghanistan and Shasta was telling me that how, how proud her father was that one of his kids had, you know, flown this small plane around the world. And when she went back to Afghanistan, she went back as this uh, female pilot who had circumnavigated the globe, which is pretty cool as well. That is amazing. I would be interested. I, I mean, perhaps, do we know what any of the other sisters do? Uh, I didn't ask that. No. That'd be interesting to see how many of them have broken yeah. the mould. She did say, I said, I asked her if they saw her differently after the trip. And uh, she said that they still just see her as the uh, aviation geek <laughs> sister. You can relate to that, John. I can. can relate to that. <laughs> um, so, toolkit. So, what are we going to, so we're going to, every week we're going to put something in our extraordinary toolkit. Yeah. So, something that everyone can use for any challenge that they, you know, that they, they might be wanting to undertake. So, I almost feel like she talks about mindset, but that's too broad a term. I think specifically it's the determination to prove wrong. Or was it making it a responsibility? But treat it as a responsibility. Yeah, as opposed to a fun, nice to do, yeah. Treat it like a responsibility. The dedication and sort of refusal... To compromise you know she was not prepared to take shortcuts maybe we treat ourselves as that inspirational character as that Geraldine Mock or Amelia Earhart or Shasta Wise where we say if other people were going to look at look at how I've done this would they say I acted in a well, you're leading by example and, and in a sense, she says from the very beginning, and you point this out, that, you know, she, she went on this aeroplane, she fell in love with flying, she got a passion for flight, and that didn't make her think, oh, I quite fancy being an airline pilot. Yeah, and sitting on she the beach. She saw this as, yeah, as an amazing opportunity to inspire. So is and it I, make it bigger than yourself? I think make it bigger than yourself, and as soon as you flip it on its head and it becomes, like you've just said, for other people... I mean, let's be honest, you're That's doing good. this for yourself, but you're doing it for your children to inspire and to motivate. Uh-huh. As soon as you make it for other people, then the responsibility becomes greater. And people do that all the time, don't they? Like, people do a marathon and they say, OK, well, I'm going to raise money for charity. Exactly. But it doesn't have to be a charity. That's just one way of making mm-hmm. it bigger than yourself. So it's almost creating your own sense of accountability. Yeah, I like that. So, yeah. That... So that when you think, oh, I'm going to cut a corner here, or I'm not going to do this properly... Well, that'll do. Yeah. You then think, well, I can't because there's people... Yeah, watching, looking. And there's a bigger thing going on here with Shasta in the sense that, yes, she's doing it to motivate and inspire. Yes, she wants other women to fall in her footsteps and we're already seeing the fruits of that labour. But there is this other sense of not compromising and doing it almost to the very best of her ability to demonstrate that she can do it just as well as a man can. Yes, and it's a shame she feels that responsibility. But it's the world we live in. But right? it is, yeah. And with more people like Shasta doing it, that will slowly, n- slowly not become a thing, yes. right? Yeah. So Sally Ride, who's an astronaut, she famously said, "You can't be what you can't see." You know, she was saying that female astronauts. Until you've seen one, kids don't grow up thinking, or girls don't grow up thinking, "I want to be an astronaut." But when you see female astronauts, or when you see female pilots, or when you see women like Shasta who've flown around the world. Mm-hmm. then that's something that's now open to you. Yes, I love that. You can't be what you can't see. So, for the toolkit from yeah. Shasta, 
the key is whatever the challenge make it bigger than yourself and as soon as you're doing it for other people then you take it on as a, as a responsibility Shasta is still working hard to promote STEM careers for women through her non-profit dreamsaw.org and you can hear more on her own podcast Aviate since we recorded this, 19-year-old Zara Rutherford, who we mentioned in the show, became the ninth and youngest woman to fly solo around the world. Thank you for listening to the first episode of our podcast, Extraordinariness. Please like, subscribe, and leave us a comment. And if you think you might know someone who would enjoy this discussion, please pass it on. The show was produced and hosted by Joanne Spence and myself, John Harmon, with music by Coma Media from pixabay.com. Please check back for more episodes of Extraordinary.